We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your words, which are good news. And I thank you, Lord, too, for those words that sometimes have to cut away something very bad in order for us to be well. You are so intent upon us receiving the blessings of your kingdom, that kingdom that does not pass away, but is good now and for eternity. May our hearts receive all that, Lord, this morning. Amen. This morning, I'm going to touch in a good bit on the gospel, but really my inspiration, which some of you probably have guessed at a little bit, is Jacob. And it has to do with that little passage in the psalm where it says that happy are they who have the God of Jacob for their help, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Happy are they who have the God of Jacob for their help, whose hope is in the Lord their God. This is a, behind me, it's a statue of Jacob. It's one that I purchased many years ago. Let's see if I can read it. It was, it was actually crafted by um, a, a brother of a friend. And it's from Genesis 47, 31. And Jacob worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And this is near the end of Jacob's life after uh, he has um, been rescued from famine by his son Joseph. It's incredible series of stories about him, but just that picture of him leaning on his staff, a lot of us know a little bit about the story of Jacob. He's, he's the third great patriarch in the story of Israel. He's a man with a tremendous legacy, and if, if you think about it, he's also our spiritual father as well. I mean, our, our father Abraham is our father Abraham, but also Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is how he was often referred to. It's like, these are the great patriarchs, the fathers of the faithful. And so that means he's our father as well. And uh, so when we want to understand what it, really the happiness of life is like, I think we want to learn something from Jacob. And I think we want to learn something certainly from our Lord this morning as well. He, uh, Jacob had to learn the hard way. It's kind of depicted in the statue here. He's, he's leaning over on his staff. And what this particular artist is, is interpreting from that, I mean, staff is a sign of authority. But it's also, in this case for Jacob, it's because he had a wound. Do you guys remember where that wound came from? It came from an, a night-long time of prayer when Jacob had finally come to the end of himself. He had um, amassed a lot of wealth, had been in a lot of different kinds of conflict, but he was a striver. He was a striver. His life had been full of strife. And um, everywhere he turned, it seemed like that was the case. And uh, it was time for him to return home where some of his strife began and return to his brother. His brother's coming down on him with 400 warriors and Jacob is afraid and he's realized he's coming face to face with his deepest fears. It's really not just his brother. It's also things that are in his own heart. So he wrestles all night with the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord um, is, is wrestling with him. And Jacob refuses to let him go until he gets a blessing. Well, he receives that blessing and the angel of the Lord touches his hip joint and puts it out of joint. And from that point forward, is, people who were sons of Jacob um, would not eat that part of uh, any animal that they were eating. They wouldn't eat that hip joint in remembrance that God had put that out of joint. And uh, he got a new name. His name became Israel. He's the father of Israel. 
He actually has a tremendous legacy. But in some ways, he had to learn what real legacy is by coming to the end of the legacy that he was trying to build for himself. And so in some ways, everything that I want to say to you, we, we can kind of learn from Jacob. Here's, here's a guy who was very rich in the, age, uh, in the riches of his age, and um, he realized how uncertain those riches were. Notice I'm quoting Paul. And he realized he had to set his hope on the God who became known as the God of Jacob. He had to set his hope in the Lord and um, become generous and become rich in works and good works. That was how he stored up treasure in heaven and became a man with a legacy. Well, in order to really appreciate what's happening, I want to turn back for a little bit here to the gospel story and how Jesus is, is really, I think he's pulling out the big guns this morning. Last week we heard from our bishop. He was talking about he doesn't want us to, the Lord doesn't want us to live in anxiety, you know, be anxious for nothing. And he wants us to trust in the Lord who, who sees us and in that seeing of us, he provides for us. He really gets what we need. And if we look to him with our need, then in that interaction with God, he's gonna provide. So seek first him and his kingdom, his ways, and the Lord's gonna provide. And it's because Jesus realizes that this way of anxiety is actually killing people. And of course, we know now, like, in this age of anxiety, I mean, it's worse than it ever has been. It is literally killing people. I mean, when you have cortisol flowing I mean, in your veins as much as we do uh, in, this, in this culture, it's like hardening your arteries. It's hardening your heart. And it, in the long run, is going to kill you prematurely. It's certainly not going to make life very pleasant. It's dangerous. And Jesus is actually getting even sharper about the implications here, and he's talking to the Pharisees and to us. He's talking both to the Pharisees and the disciples. The Pharisees kind of, for us, we get to uh, give ourselves a free pass because we think, well, these are the Pharisees. They're the ones with the problem. You know, so now he's starting to talk about um, this rich man, this rich ruler who's wearing purple every day. And of course, the high priest Caiaphas was exactly that. And the Pharisees are tracking probably with what he's saying. And a lot of, a lot of folks, including Josephus, that's an early church historian, said, well, he was talking about the high priest and everybody knew it because the high priest had five brothers. And he thought he was okay. He thought he was doing pretty well. He was kicking back and enjoying Netflix with his friends, you know? He was lazing about on ivory couches. And the truth is, he was in danger. And Jesus wanted them to know that, but he also wanted us to know that. He wanted his disciples to know that. It's, um, it's probably the case that we're not completely taken over by whatever's going on in, in those Pharisees. And we'll talk about what that is. We're not completely taken over by that, but it's in our hearts a little bit. You can't help it because it's also in the culture right now. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this principle of mammon. It's this dynamic thing. It's even demonic. A lot of times it is understood as demonic. And it's operative in the world, especially in our success-driven world where we're constantly, intensely, anxiously, nervously going after achievements. And we're feeling pressure to go after achievements so so that we can have a sense like maybe we mean something. And we're constantly doing that in order to be recognized by other people so that they can say, hey, you're pretty good too. 
and then we kind of have a club of mutual, hey, we're pretty good too. Like the Pharisees hanging out at their table, enjoying their, the spoils of their victories from this impulse of, and this drive to acquire more and more, more and more recognition, more and more money, more and more power. That's the spirit of mammon. It's a, it's, it touches in on a lot of things. It touches in on wealth. It touches in on achievement. It could even touch in on some things that are good. And I'm going to say a lot of these things are good. Like it's not necessarily bad for you to want to get good grades. And if you're really a good student, it's not so bad for you to understand that you're a nerd and to want to get affirmation from nerds. And if you're a sports person, to really hone your sports skills and get affirmation from your team and your coach. It's not necessarily bad. Or if you're in theater, to really work on your artistic gifts. But when you have to have that next role, or when, let's put it this way, when you're a parent and you have to have your kids have that next role, and you're caught up in this, this swirl of destructive mammon, then your, your kids become subject to it too. It's really clear that Jesus is not commending this rich man in hell for saying, yeah, go talk to my brothers. He's just saying, those in, in, in this passage, he's really talking about extensions of himself. Extensions of his own identity rooted in achievement and in earthly, worldly success. And sometimes we, we do the same thing with our families. And we're caught up in this deadly, life-killing way of life. And what's worse is that we actually don't even see the really vulnerable around us. We don't know, first of all, that we're vulnerable, and therefore, eventually, we become so hardened in that that we don't see the vulnerable ones around us. Like, you know, so if you're in theater, the ones that keep on trying out for a role and they never get a role, right? All of you kids who are in CYT, those lonely ones, the ones that maybe who aren't that great at sports, but they keep on trying and they never get picked. You know, do we see those kids? The, the kids that aren't popular that sit alone during lunch all the time, do we see them? Are we so caught up in our process of our own identity with our tribe and our people and our achievements that we don't see these folks on the margins. It's happening at a cultural level too. We don't see the Lazarus that's laying at the gate in our lives. We completely miss it. We're indifferent to the pain of others because we spent so much time in our own lives trying to numb our own pain. All of this mammon stuff is trying to be okay on our own strength and to be okay in the ways that the world gives us to do it. Well, Jesus doesn't do it this way. He actually can see the little ones. He hangs out with them. He hangs out with all the folks on the margins. He gets in trouble for it. He gets no credit for it from anybody who is in power already. And he does that because he's a physician who goes to those who actually know that they're sick. And he actually appoints disciples who they have no education, they've got no cred credentials, no standing to be leaders from a worldly standpoint. It's kind of shocking. But all of it is because he wants to gather in his little ones into his arms. And he includes all of Jerusalem in that. Even the Pharisees, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you in my arms like a mother hen gathers her chicks. 
and you would have none of it. And he loves everyone he's talking to. Even the harshness of this word, and it's really, really harsh. I love you, and I want you to come into my way. I want you to start dealing with the motivations that are leading you into death and really hell. You have these streams maybe working in your own heart, these motivations in your own heart. I want to get you back totally in the river of life. I want you to be moved by love. I want you first to receive my love so you can then extend it to others. So he's really going after um, some, from some deep stuff. And when you, when you look at mammon, um, and why does it grab hold of it? It's, it? it's because of fear. It's all fear-driven. It's a motivation to live based upon fear and to make yourself okay. So we do everything we can, and the world teaches us to do it this way. In the Old Testament, there's this interesting word. It's called, um, well, it's, it's actually literally the kidney. And sometimes it's translated from the Old Testament as the reins, the reins of the heart. And what it means is that how are you energizing your life? How are you actually motivated? Like what's the power from which you're, you're living your life? And what, what God does is he searches the reins of the heart he goes to those places, and he wants to establish in there a way of life that's love-based, not fear-based. And what's also interesting about that is that that word there is also known as kidneys. And it says, like in the, in the temple, it says, the kidneys were gods. In a way, what it's saying is the motivations of your life are meant to be for God and from God. The motivations of your life are meant to be for God and from God. And who is he? He's, he's about love. He's about mercy. The very thing that's not happening to Lazarus, there's no mercy here for him in the world. And the world doesn't give mercy, and it doesn't give mercy to the strivers either. And so you, you, you die in strife. It kills you. And then you accidentally, when you're caught up in that kind of strife, you, you end up hurting and neglecting others too. He wants to get at those motivations that do that. And he's pretty serious about it. I was thinking about the, the I, I thought, man, he's, he's getting more and more intense about it. He's been building to this, and now he's so aggressive. He's talking about hell. You guys think you're okay? You're headed for hell. And that's, that's firing an RPG. You like, Evan, I was thinking about you when I, you guys know what that is? It's a rocket-propelled grenade. It's an RPG. He's firing an RPG. This is like no holds barred. He's done with what is ruining and ruling people's lives. Except this time, what he's firing, it's not just a grenade that destroys, because he wants to destroy mammon. He's in battle against that. But what he wants to do is he wants to explode life in us. He wants to explode real motivational life that, that's creative, that's free, that actually is about life and then sharing life. So RPG was the, the thing that came to me, and then I realized, oh, I can do a good sermon thing here, we're going to talk about the three things that we can do, RPG, to respond to this. Because he wants to explode new life in all of us. And it's good. Because it's hell it's, that's otherwise going to win, and we will be hurting because of it. Um, in fact, I think it's, James puts it this way, when this stuff gets a hold of you, it's like your life is rusting away. You, your riches are going to rust, but your soul's rusting, and that's what the problem, your, your life is corroding away the more you're living like this. So I want to go back to Jacob. We're going to talk about this process of coming into this way of life, 
um, by first of all looking at Jacob. So once again, Jacob, he's come to the end of himself. Like he's been pursuing this way, this mammon way for a long time. He's got 400 men from his brother and his brother's angry and he, uh, he has probably good reason to be angry because what did Jacob do? He actually stole his birthright. We don't have time to go into that, but he stole the blessing of the father that's supposed to be for the elder son. And he, um, based on the scheming of Jacob, who was called the striver, that's what his name means, and the supplanter, the ambition of Jacob, Esau loses that blessing. And from that point forward, he's set against Jacob, and Jacob knows this. Jacob knows that he did something that was a betrayal and a hurtful thing because he felt like he had to. He felt like he had to climb over his brother, and he had to make his way over his brother. So at this point, he's realizing everything in his life has been messed up. So the first thing he does, he takes a whole bunch of his wealth. He's an extremely wealthy man, you know, in, all, in the form of all of the sheep and the, and the um, many other kinds of wealth. I can't remember all of them. He sends them out ahead to meet Jacob with his 400 men who are coming at him. And then he spends the entire night in prayer, as I mentioned. And really what's happening here is he's repenting. I've talked a little bit about repentance. There's different ways that we can understand it. But really what God's saying is he, here is, and what the Lord's saying in his, his parable, the reason he's painting such a terrible picture is because he wants you to stop it. Stop this stuff. <laughs> and to do it in a tangible way is really helpful. And that means like you, you, you decide to stop striving. That's what Jacob has done. And part of what he's done to really establish that is he's let go of some of the stuff that he's striven for. He's sent ahead some of his wealth. He's stopped striving and he's sent ahead some of his wealth but he's also gotten down on his face and all night long in his tent he's coming back to who he really is. The understanding of Jacob is that he was a man who spent time in the tent which is another way of saying he, he dwelt with God. He hadn't been doing that for a long time. He's finally coming back to God. Jesus is basically saying interrupt your meal Caiaphas and go out to the gate. Stop eating. <laughs> so stop investing in this process of, of of mammon. And maybe then you'll begin to see something. And maybe then um, you'll come to a different judgment because I want you to come to a different judgment. You know, Lazarus is lying at the gates, which is a place of judgment. He's hoping that somebody will see him and judge him worthy of mercy and will come and feed him and care for him. And we can't come to a different judgment until at some point we let go of our wrong judgments. Like, I actually think my life consists in getting better grades. I actually think my life consists in getting a better job performance review. I'm not saying poor performance is what God's striving for. I'm saying if you are driven by fear to do well, then it's really hurting you, and the Lord wants you to repent of that, to repent of, of your ways of doing that in yourself or maybe even through others like your, your family. Be careful brothers and sisters, of overvaluing things like your grades, your roles, who you get to hang out with, your tribe. Just let them go. Repent of that. You know, um, the way that Jacob is described is as one who grabs. He's a striver who grabbed. And it's even, he was told in his family um, that he was, when he was born, was grabbing the heel of his brother. Like, it's so deeply ingrained in Jacob and it's so deeply ingrained in us that we feel like we have to grasp because otherwise we're not going to be okay that 
the, the depth of the repentance is pretty deep. And, and we feel kind of helpless there. Like this stuff, Lord, man, I am, I'm afraid at the depths of who I am. How can I do this? And I think in some ways, what Jacob is doing is kind of like Lazarus at the gate. He's finally understanding that he's sick. He's finally understanding that all he can do is stretch himself out before the Lord. All he can do is desire for the Lord's help. It's kind of cool that um, Lazarus is the name that Jesus uh, assigns to this person. It, it seems like it might be a parable, it might not be, but Lazarus actually means God helps. God is my help, which is the God of Jacob. Happy are they who hope in the Lord and have him as their help, not their striving. So that's repentance. We stretch out our arms towards the Lord in prayer. We repent of the wrong judgments. We even sometimes release some of the stuff that we've won in the wrong way. And then secondly, we pray. So that's a second movement here with Jacob. And Jesus isn't talking about this necessarily in this passage, but really he is calling us to pray and get back on our knees. And so Jacob is, is intensely praying all night long. The way that um, I think Paul would describe it, he's fighting the good faith. That's the, uh, the Latin right there that we have up there. He's fighting the good faith. He's trusting not in trying to get ahead by his own means and through recognition and wealth, but now instead he is intensely, like, kind of like the way John is described by Jesus. He's, he's, he wants to go into the kingdom now and he's willing to really engage by force if necessary. So all of that striving he is now directing to God. He's saying, Lord, I'm not going to continue to try and climb over Esau by fighting him. I'm going to instead ask you for your blessing. Everything that's been driving me at the depths, I'm going to turn it towards you. He's getting at the roots so that he can be rerooted in love and not in fear. And that's when finally the Lord, the angel of the Lord touches him in his hip. He changes his identity. So what's interesting about him being touched in his hip, a lot of, um, of the tradition about this passage is that that is a, a symbol of that part between our own thoughts and motivations and our ability to execute in the world. Like the legs touch the ground. It's how you engage with the earth and manipulate the things of the earth. Like you become a shepherd, you're using your legs to shepherd your sheep or, or to go out and till the land if you're a farmer. And it's that symbol of the means of how we get ahead in life. Except what God is doing is he's touching, he's interrupting that and he's recentering it in a different motivational center. He's giving it a different purpose. And... Um, he really is giving a motivation of love instead. So what happens is his name gets changed after, the, after that and he, he's struggling and to walk and he's, he's kind of like that and probably had to have some sort of support all life long then. A constant reminder that he has to depend upon God. A constant reminder. And it's on that that he leans when he worships. So Israel becomes his name. So instead of somebody striving to get ahead, his name is Israel. 
and that means one who overcomes with God. And so he's the father of a nation because of that. He's been trying to build his own nation, but then he really becomes the father of the family of God. So that's, that's repent, that's prayer, the intensity of that prayer. I was thinking about the, you know, the part of that that I've experienced in my own life. I've had my own share of, of fear and anxiety and needing the blessing of the Lord at these very vulnerable places that I've been, I've been resisting and not wanting to expose to God. And um, I remember one time I was praying and I was overcome with this anxiety I don't know if you've ever had panic attacks or anything like that, but it was really shaking me in, the, in my body. And, and I was all night praying. I really identify with Jacob. And at some point, I just saw this little baby girl. And she was distressed and she was crying. And I felt like the Lord was, I could hear the Lord's voice saying, it's okay, you're gonna be just fine. I'm taking care of you. And that voice, I I started to resonate with that voice. And I started to say, yeah, it's going to be okay. I'm taking care of you. It it was kind of like this this part, uh, I think it was maybe part of my own heart, I don't know, represented by this little baby girl. But I could feel the Lord giving me that deep assurance and quieting all the anxiety that was in me. And um, it started to change how I looked at myself. It started to change how I felt what I had to do and the energy behind it. God was doing something. He was renaming me. Well, the third thing I want to point out is that from there, if you want to live in a way that's different from the the, the mammon of the world, is you give. Jacob became a giver. You you share from yourself. You you share your gifts. And uh, I guess the way that Jesus is talking about it is you give alms. That was, the, that was a way of expressing mercy. Um, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, that kind of love includes your attention. Your strength is your energy, but it's also your money. Those two things are often connected in the Jewish tradition. So you share from yourself. You share your energy. You share your attention. You share your gifts because you've been a- you're enabled to, because God has paid attention to you, and you felt him paying attention to you in these places which have been too hard to pay attention to yourself. Actually, you've, you've, you've been experiencing the tenderness of God, and then you can actually be tender to other people, if that makes sense. So what happens is, is uh, Jacob becomes a man of hospitality. Hospitality, um, you know, first towards God, but to others as well. I want to just say I'm so grateful for us as a church because you know, we're, we're a church that's, we, we, we want to be reflecting the Lord's love, the light of Christ's love, hope, and healing. When we talk about the light of Christ, we're talking about him looking at us and us looking at him. And then we want to reflect that love and share that hospitality. We do that so well here. We welcome people. But we've also recently done it with Amy, who just lost her husband and her kids. And um, some of us have even offered to put her up for a while while she looks for a house, and we've responded to that. And so I wanted to just say, you guys are, you guys are givers in a beautiful way, and I want to commend you for that. You are in the way of the Lord. This river of life, it's moving in you, and I'm, I'm blessing you in that because it, it's beautiful. There's something else that I was thinking about here that 
there's this, this what's going on in our, our, our American church? I can't entirely understand it. I mean, we've seen this kind of striving way of doing church even, like the striving way that was going on in Israel. It's infected our churches too. And you can say, oh, it's just places like Harvest, like the mega churches. And boy, they're having their come up in snow, aren't they? Or the willows, I mean, they're having their come up in, so like, those guys are bad. They're just like the Pharisees, you know? But I'm starting to think, no, maybe, maybe you know, it's, it's even possible that people who are poor in the power of the world, they can become fixated on these things too. You can still be kind of seduced and, and mixed up about this stuff. And I know I'm, I can be the same way. We're a small church, right? But I can still have that issue. I love this story I, I just recently read about a guy named Francis Chan. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a big megachurch pastor. And at a certain point, you know, he felt like every single Sunday, everybody wanted him. He's an excellent preacher. So he's up there on a pedestal, and it, he, everybody wanted him, and he's striving, and it's killing him, and he feels like, I don't know that anybody else is growing. Everybody else is sort of consuming, sitting out there, and, and nobody else is giving. They, they haven't entered in the, the, the G of the RPG. I'm, I'm giving, and it's killing me, and it's gratifying my ego, but who else is giving? You know, how do we become a church where, where all of us are beloved ones who love? Like each of you understands that it's part of your job to give as you've been given to, to love as you've been loved, to help others pray in the way that you've learned to pray. If you've learned to repent in the way that I'm talking about, that's a really vulnerable thing. It's beautiful. Have you been able to share that with other people? As Chan, Chan is saying, I had to get away from the big church and go into a small group ministry, basically. Now he does all of his churches, and he's now launched a new movement. It's a bunch of house churches. That means there's 10 to 20 people relating to one another so that every single one of us can be givers. And every single one of us can attend to each other. They pay attention to each other. Like they, they actually linger after the service um, and they live life together and they do meals together. And so they give. And that's something that Jacob got really good at. Now he started to be a man of blessing. At the end of his life, he was able to bless one another and to love his family and to love others as well. It talks about he could see every single one of his sons by the end. So he could actually bless them in the truth of who they are. Remember what the problem was that Jesus says that Caiaphas wasn't even seeing Lazarus. We weren't even seeing him. By the end, Jacob could see. And so he could actually love and bless. He could give in a way that really meant something to his sons. He actually even, by the way, he even blessed Pharaoh, it said, at one point in his life after this experience. He still had some issues. God still had to deal with some other ways that he was still a little bit anxious. Um, Joseph, like, he gave more attention to Joseph for a little while. And that got his whole family into trouble. It says that he fainted, his spirit fainted. That's how, how hard it was for them. But God worked through that too, and his spirit revived, and he became a man who could bless and give because love had won over in his life. Um, there's something here that I want to say too about Jacob. You know, this stuff goes really deep in him. And that's why it, it took a long time for the Lord to work on it. But it's not, to become part of the real family of God, it's actually not about your genetics. 
It's not about what happened to you when you were a baby. To really become like the family of God and like Jacob, it means to let him love you. This is love that he first loved you and covered your sins with that love. And then you're part of his family. And this is love that you keep his words of love, Jesus says. Because you know, there are there folks who are saying, hey, blessed are you who, um, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that fed you. And he says, brother, blessed are those who hear my words and keep them. And his words were, love God and love one another. Be loved first by me and then love. If you really want to become a family and have a family and to be able to be part of God's family, it's, it doesn't matter how things started for you. It doesn't matter how deep this went. The Lord can bring his love into your repentance, into your prayers, and into your giving. In our church at the uh, provincial level, that means at the national level, our archbishop talks a lot about how much we, we here are to care about the least and the last and how much we are to love that way. May we turn to the Lord of love and begin to share in new ways. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that whatever striving has been characterizing our life, now we can, we can turn to you, we can stretch out before you. Lord, I thank you that when your love comes in, you can reverse the flow of life into just fresh living waters. Lord, I thank you that you can make us um, to move from consuming to giving, to move from ambition to trust. Lord, I thank you that you can transform us from takers into givers and people who can see and pay attention and bless. Lord, your love is so great that you gave yourself up on the cross and poured your blood out to, to, to cover our sins, but also to cast out our fears. Lord, as we come to the time of our confession, may we bow down. May we bow down as Jacob did in the tent, but also, Lord, may we bow down as he did before Esau. Lord, I thank you that as he stood up and looked at Esau, he saw the face of God, is how it's put, but he also saw you as Israel. When you touched him, he saw the face of God in your love. Lord, I pray that when we rise up here this morning, that we would see you and then become people who see, that we would know we're loved and that we can love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.